0: Well, good rainy morning to you. Anyone enjoying that cooler weather? Yeah, didn't sweat on the way to church this morning, which is kind of nice. And we'll open your Bibles to Matthew 6, uh, whether you're looking at a device or hard copy or wherever it is that you happen to look. As you're doing that, I want to tell you where I was last night. We went to a wedding in Dallas to celebrate a young couple getting married, and this young man and young woman surrendered their independence and their singleness. And promise to unconditionally always and forever no matter what circumstances come their way love each other completely until death planted one of them in the ground and they have no idea what they're doing. Uh, It's and it's such a wonderful thing. I I love watching young couples and that gleam in their eye and the tear that shows up when she starts coming on the aisle and just that willingness to say I do to an impossible task and Uh, Just the complete cluelessness that comes with that that moment, and it's such a wonderful, beautiful thing. And we went from there out to a, a reception, and the reception was at this house that looked something, I think we've got a picture of it here. And this place was pretty remarkable. And as a, apparently if you invent a piece of technology that everyone in the world needs to use or wants to use, you get to buy a house like this. And so this was a house that, this is where the reception was held. And as we did that, um, man, we were just we were kind of blown away by the whole thing. And I don't know what happens with technology. I sent like several pictures in and half of them worked and half of them didn't. So I'm going to show you just a little bit of the house. Uh, but this house was five stories tall. Uh, tall. It was immense uh, as you walked through the whole thing, and apparently it was just where someone lived for a short amount of time, uh, because based on when the technology was invented and based on this year, I know he couldn't have lived there more than two decades, uh, and yet he built this this incredible mansion. Eventually, sold, became a wedding venue and a venue for other events. But uh, next picture. Look at this uh, bowling alley. Uh, any of you ever wanted a bowling alley in your house? As we walked around and. Uh, Truth be told, we kind of snuck around downstairs a little bit. We wanted to see more of this thing because uh, whenever you see a house like this, you're just kind of intrigued. Like, what all they do in this joint? And so there's, uh, there, there's a bowling alley. Uh, there's a basketball court, which I was a little disappointed in because it didn't have a full three-point line. And I'm like, if you're going to put a basketball court in your house, you might as well do the whole thing so you can do like a Trey Young shimmy and practice your three-pointers. Uh, you should have a little bit more distance there. Uh, there, was, there was a lap pool that was just immaculate and covered with marble and all this Im- incredible stuff surrounded by windows. There's a sauna. Uh, as you walk through the rest of this thing, I mean, there's a library, there's spiral staircases and hardwood all around. There's uh, just these overhangs and honestly, look, I was waiting for Al Pacino from Scarface to show up because it looked very similar to that kind of a vibe through the whole thing. Um, but Nan was really impressed, I have to say, with the closet. And I've got a picture of part of the closet. This was a two-story wraparound. Nan said it was a Chanel closet. I don't really know what that means, but it apparently was decked out in all this special stuff. Um, but this picture here, these are, it's a little hard to see, but encased, there were uh, two stories and a wraparound giant closet, um, places for them. Those are just the racks for them to hang their clothes. Um this was an incredible place, and when you think about that, um, it's crazy, right, uh, and you know, when we see a house like that, it's just a novelty, and you're kind of curious and interested, because none of us ever, you know, assume we're going to be in a place like that, so you're just wandering around going, what's going to be around the next corner, and you walk around, you're like, you're kidding me, um, and here's the thing that, that stood out to me as I was thinking about this, um, especially knowing what I'm preaching about today, as I'm walking around this place with this text coming through my head, um, it's easy to picture those shelves filled with the nicest clothes, isn't it? It's easy to picture the cellars in that joint filled with the, the greatest uh, bottles you could consume. It's easy to fill those halls filled with uh, the the most important people at a party. But you know what you can't tell by looking at those pictures? You don't know what the state of the heart was. You don't know if the if the laughter in those halls was just the laughter of uh, of people yucking it up at a party, whether it was truly the belly laughter of a family that was deeply uh, enjoying one another. You don't know uh, whether the, the things that happened in, that, in, those, in those hallways and that marriage was re- truly filled with trust and intimacy and joy. You don't know if uh, the people that walked the halls and, and, lived and slept in those rooms and got up and left that, uh, that, that garage that was filled with, uh, with multiple cars on display, you don't know whether they got in a car and drove off and uh, shined brightly for the Lord in the city, as he calls us to do. You don't know where they were eternally headed. You don't know what their destination was and whether or not they would flourish in Jesus' forever kingdom or not. So as you see the externals, it's easy to be impressed and kind of stand in awe of some of those things. But there's another part of that that I think we need to ask ourselves, which is, what is the truth of their life? And so look with me at Matthew chapter six, we're going to look at verse 19. And as we do, we're going to look at kind of a different direction. Jesus is going to, uh, to, to talk with us about seeking a stronger foundation for our happiness, uh, for our security, and for our treasure. You know, it's interesting to me is not many of us probably aspire to live in a house like that. And so I think it's easy when we begin to read Jesus' words here to think, well, this isn't really a temptation for me. I don't have anything approaching what that person has. What, what happens to most of us is not that we get distracted by something of that immense, um, that immense structure of that house and all the trappings and everything that goes with it. What happens to most of us is we have, we've got a monkey of responsibility in our lives, Uh, to pay the bills, to manage our money, to do those things. And we allow that monkey responsibility to grow into a gorilla of distraction on our backs that just weighs us down and keeps us from doing all that God wants us to do. So I want us to lean in today. And as we do this, what we're going to see is the key to our flourishing in a world that's money hungry is to find the right treasure for your heart, the right vision for your eyes, and the right mission or the right master for your mission. So let's look at Matthew 6 and start in verse 19. Jesus says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For there, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, the whole body will be full of darkness. If then... The light in you is darkness. How great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other one. You cannot serve God and money. This is the, word, the words of our Lord Jesus as he taught on this all-important topic of money. In the last couple of weeks, uh, we've talked about prayer, we've talked about fasting, and in that Jesus has talked about kind of the inner realms of our spiritual life, the private places where you go to be strengthened with the Lord, and it's just you and God and in this kind of quiet place, and it really deals with the inner uh, kind of situation of your life. Now Jesus is going to shift, and he's going to go from kind of that private life to your public life. He's going to shift and go from the inner to kind of the external, and the reality for us is that, that we go and we, we pray, and Jesus taught us how to pray to our Father and heaven and said that that everything in our life ought to be determined by the care of a heavenly father. And so in that inner place, we get strengthened for that, but we get strengthened for that in order to go live in the earthy world in which we find ourselves. And so um, as we get sent back out into the real world, the goods of this world have a way of making us crazy uh, with chasing, with accumulating, with worry, with anxiety, with, uh, with managing the things of life. They have a way of just taking over and distracting us from other things. Um, and Jesus is going to stop. And he, he, even though he talked to us about this kind of inner stuff, he says, but I also understand that you still need to, you still need to pay your bills. You still need to live in the, at a physical level and learn how to flourish in the world in which, in which you find yourself. And so he's going to talk about money and possessions, security, comfort. And we all relate to those things, don't we? because we have to go to the grocery store and buy food. We all have to pay bills. We've got to figure out how to pay for our kids' college. I'm learning more about that rapidly. We've got to learn how to, how to go on vacation. We've got to learn how to put a roof over our heads and just manage the stuff of life. And in the midst of that, I think it's important to say God cares about that too. He recognizes that. He sees that, and he speaks to that. And so Jesus here bluntly just says, look, there's two ways to be in the world. There's a smart way and a dumb way. Which one are you? I mean, it's kind of where Jesus goes with this. There's a wise way, there's a foolish way in, in terms of living in the world. And he's gonna draw some hard lines here and just say, here's what you need to understand about the way in which the world works. And how we live in the world reveals, externally reveals something about what's going on internally in our hearts. And so all the work we did in praying and walking with the Lord and being in private where it's me and the Lord talking and we're connecting ought to be reflected in the way in which we interact with our culture and everything around us. And so it shows up in how we understand money. Now, so as Jesus kind of shifts this, I think what kind of where he's gonna go with this is, is really talking about not just what we consume, but what consumes us. What are the things that our minds are focused on, that our attention, our creativity, our ingenuity, but also our worry and our stress, all these things consume us sometimes. And Jesus can say, don't let those consume you. There's something better for you there. And so here's what we're gonna look at. I want us to, to look at three keys to flourishing in a money-hungry world today. And so as we think about these three keys, I'll just give you what they are for the beginning. Three keys that Jesus is gonna give us. Uh, one is the treasure of your heart. Two is the focus of your vision. And three is the master of your mission. And so this is where we're going to go today. We're going to look at those three things. So let's take the first one, the treasure of your heart. Verses 19 to 21, one of the most famous sayings of Jesus, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And so that shows up in this text. And as we uh, kind of unpack that, the basic idea that Jesus is getting at is everyone is a treasure hunter. Uh, There's no one that, that walks the face of this earth that's not hunting for a treasure, for something that would satisfy, for something that they would value. We all have some set of a lens that we look at the world in that tells us this is what's truly important, and we seek those things. And so every one of us is a treasure hunter, and Jesus is operating with kind of that assumption. And when you think about treasure, treasure is kind of this big category that could include a lot of stuff. Yes, it's money, it's also our possessions. It's our status. It's anything that we value and we pursue as a treasure that we've set our heart on and said, I think if I get that, I will become a happier, more joyful person. And so you run after those things. Those are the things that you treasure. And what Jesus ultimately says here is, don't limit yourself to treasures that won't last. He's saying, why, why would you measure everything by treasure that you're not gonna be able to hold onto very, very, very long at all? Uh, It's going to be here, it's going to be gone, and then there's nothing left for you. So you notice Jesus' logic. He he forms a really logical argument here. And he doesn't say, don't store up treasures. He doesn't even say, don't store up treasures for yourself, right? He says, don't store up treasures for yourself on earth. And so he's not actually telling us that treasure-seeking is bad, He just says, be smart about where you're you're seeking treasure. Do some cost-benefit analysis. Figure out what it is that, you know, you're gonna get rewarded through this pursuit. That if you invest your life in this thing, what's really gonna benefit to you? What's gonna come down to you as a a reward or as something good? And if it's a temporary thing that's not gonna last, you probably need to find a a better treasure to seek. And so that's where Jesus is gonna push us in this section. So first, let me say what Jesus is not saying about money. I um, mean, he, he's not saying that we should withdraw from life and lived in adject poverty and suffering uh, in, in kind of an aesthetic uh, extremism. He's not saying we need to take a vow of poverty and enter a convent. Uh, these are not the things he says. Other elsewhere in Scripture, uh, the Scriptures praise the ant, and so the ant is smart because it stores up things to provide for itself later on, and so it doesn't run out of things when wintertime comes, uh, because it's lived in wisdom. Uh, the Bible says that those who fail to provide for their families are worse than unbelievers, the uh, Bible continues to come in and says we're, we're told to actually enjoy the good gifts that our Father gives, not to despise them, not to even allow someone else to speak against them, but if, we're, if our heart is right, to be able to free in our enjoyment of those things. Um, he doesn't say that money is the root of all evil, but the love of money is the root of all evil, that there's a heart issue that's here. And absolutely, money is a stumbling block for so many in our world. And we see this over and over and over, not just in our own lives, but out through, throughout human history. Where one, uh, one people diminishes another and takes advantage of them out of their greed. And because they've made an idol out of money, you see these things happening over and over and over throughout human history. But we also see them in our own hearts, don't we? The, the money trips us up and sometimes puts us in a bad place. And so uh, in this, uh, what D.A. Carson said, that money or our treasure tugs at our minds and our emotions, it consumes our time with planning and daydreaming and effort to achieve. Uh, the, the Kind of a selfish way of life and, a, and a, an achievement-oriented way of life just f- drives us to continue to try to accumulate more or to find our security in that and rest in the security of whatever we've put together rather than trusting the one who truly can provide for us beyond the short term. So what Jesus says is just choose wisely. It's not a matter of if your earthly tre- treasures will dissipate, it's when. When will these things deteriorate? When will they decay? And what Jesus says is these are things that are gonna rust and moth will destroy. And you think of uh, really in that day, uh, moths would eat clothes, mice would get in the stores of grain and eat up stuff. Uh, their, their goods and uh, their homes would, be, uh, would, would continue to deteriorate. Any of you relate to that? Uh, you know, you buy a house and it does pretty well for a little while. And then all of a sudden you start, you're like, oh, the gutter's falling off. Oh, this is not happening. Oh, there's a leak over here. Oh, you know, and you start having to chase these things down because it's not going to last forever. It's not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when. And uh, beyond that, in our day, um, fashions change. Like if you build your whole life around fashion, you're going to constantly be changing because there's always another season, right? I mean, like, I don't know what those are. I, I sometimes dress the same thing until it comes back around and it's cool again. Uh, and so, you know, there's some, there's some, maybe some issues that I got to deal with there. But, And some of you just need to know, like, that mullet that you had in high school, it's back now. So you're okay. But these are things that they don't last. The, the things that we pursue, the things we chase, and they come and they go. What's cool and what's hip right now? Uh, technology that you had that you think, man, this is the coolest thing I ever had. In six months, you'll be like, I don't even want that thing anymore. I need something better. And so the things of earth continue to rotate and change, and your video games are going to go out of style, and you're going to want to do another one very soon, because that's just the way of the world. And so as we chase those things, it's important to recognize that all those things terminate. They've got an end date. I love what John Orberg says. He tells the story of his grandmother. When he was a kid, they would go and play uh, games with his grandmother. And any of you just lose your mind over, over board games? Like, you get it out And whenever you get it out, your kids are there, and you know you get out. And first, you fight over who gets which piece. Then you fight over who gets to go first. And then you land on a deal, and you get super excited, and you're overjoyed because you got the property you wanted. And then you're just coming unglued because someone took the other property that you needed, and it interfered with your game and your thing. So now you're in total despair, and your kids are just doing this the whole game, and you're thinking, I don't even know if it works, it, and if it's worth playing the game to figure this out. And Orberg said uh, that his grandmother always would remind them. When they play the game, he said, look, at the end of the game, it all goes back in the box. All this stuff we're fighting, for, we're fighting over, at the end of the game, we put it all back in the box, and we put the lid on, and we put it back in the closet, and there's none of that that remains in life. And yet, in the middle of the game, man, you're upset. You're excited. Everything in your life seems to rest on the victory and, and the, the fake money that you possess that you try to hide from your brother or your sister, right? Can you relate to that? Um, there's a correlation in life. And our life has a termination, it's got a beginning point and a termination point here on earth. And you can't take it with you. Like no one puts a U-Haul in the back of the hearse. Like when it, whenever you get to that end date, it's all going back in the box. And someone else is going to take it and they're going to do something else with it. Your kids are going to take it and spend it on something you never would have wanted them to spend it on. That's just what's going to happen. And you can't, you're not going to take it with you. There's an end date. And I think it's important for us to recognize that. My financial planner, I love. One of the things that's always a little startling when it happens, but when we sit down and we look at kind of our financial plan and what we're trying to do, he has what's called an end of plan. And he always just throws that out, end of plan. And what I'm going is like, you mean end of life. But what end of plan means is you you can do whatever you can with this, but there comes a point where it's over and there's nothing else you can do. And your plan, whatever planning you had, it's just gone. And that's the reality of what Jesus is saying is all this stuff goes away at some point And so the point is that we need to invest wisely. We need to invest strategically. We need to invest eternally. And so there's two ways to relate to money. We can value it for the temporary pleasure and security it brings, or we can lay up for ourselves treasure that will never go away, treasure that will never dissipate, treasure that will never be taken from us, but treasure that we can count on for all time. Hebrews 11.1, I think this is why Hebrews 11.1 says, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the belief in things or the conviction of things not yet seen. It's, it's a walk of faith. There's a reality that our, our life of faith, our trusting the Lord is trusting something we can't see yet. See, I, I, can't, I, can't, I can't see into heaven. I can't see into the new heavens when Jesus comes back and makes all thing new. I can't tell you what it tastes and smells like yet. But I have to trust that he's going to do that. And so we're investing our lives in something that's going to accumulate great treasure in those places that we can't see yet, which means it's a walk of faith, which is why Jesus so much in this chapter has talked about our Father in heaven and why he taught us to pray to our Father in heaven. He said, everything you do is under the care of a good Father that you can trust. Going on in Hebrews 11, Hebrews eleven six says, Without faith, it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and he rewards those who seek him. Do you see how instrumental all of this is to shaping the way in which we live our day-to-day life? What he's saying is when you understand what that is and you believe and you trust your heavenly father to deliver on what he promised, then you can back that down from the end that awaits you and say, I know now what, how to live. That gives me perspective on how to live in the here and now whenever I live with an eternal perspective. And this only happens when we shift our way, our focus away from earthly stuff and toward our heavenly father. Isn't it interesting or ironic even that Jesus doesn't didn't kind of tell us, hey, stop seeking treasure. What he says is just don't seek treasure for yourself on earth. Seek treasure for yourself in heaven. Find something that's more permanent and eternal. So what's it mean to think about Treasures stored up in heaven. It's um, one thing to think about or to, to hear that. It's that thing to go, well, how do I do that? What does that really look like? What does that really mean? Uh, really, he's saying, <clears throat> invest your life in what God's doing. Uh, see what, what God in his word has described of what is valued and begin to value what he values. Begin to care about what he cares about. The things that are on God's heart, let those things be on your heart. The things that God is about and doing in the world be about those things. And so you invest your life in the things that God is doing here in the world. And so that means we're active in our relationship with God. We're active in the realm of His kingdom. It means we actively care for our own spiritual health. It means we invest in getting to know God's Word and how He's revealed Himself and how He wants us to live. It means that we pursue Him and that we commit ourselves to trusting Him. It also means that we purposely invest our energy and our resources and our time and our skills and our gifts in eternal things. So we care about the things he cares about, which means we, we seek the good of all human beings because we believe that, they're, that, that everyone is made in the image of God. It means we care when we see the, the poor and the needy, that we care about them and their well-being because we have a God who was rich when we were poor and made himself known to us. And so we wanna care for those around us. It means that we love, we care about the salvation of our neighbors because we want them to know the grace and the love of Jesus. We want to tell them in a gospel conversation how they can come to know him. It means we, we care about what God says over the opinions of men and women that flip-flop as fast as a trout in a river. And so we trust the Lord in those things. First Peter 1 says that he's born us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So don't invest in stuff that's going to decay, fall apart, and disappear invest in stuff that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading. And so really he's talking about anything down on earth that ripples into into eternity. It's Christ-like character. That's the way in which we live. It's faith, hope, and love. It's our efforts to share gospel good news with other people. It's uh, the use of our gifts for others. It's our investment of money in God's mission. All these temporary activities, he says, ripple into eternity and we're storing up reward for ourselves. 1 Timothy 6 says it this way. And I love that in the scriptures, you see this kind of beginning to end echo where the same thread runs all the way through. So what Jesus said, you see uh, Paul saying here, he says, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or prideful, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, right? Don't set your hopes on something that's not going to last, but on God. Put your hope, Turn your hope away from earth, but to God, who richly provides us everything to enjoy. They are to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous, ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. I love the phrase there, that which is truly life. We've been talking about Jesus' theme through the whole Sermon on the Mount is this is how you flourish under God's care and in God's kingdom. This is what a flourishing life looks like. And Paul says, this is how you, tr- how you take hold of that which is truly life. It's through being generous, through investing in, in God's mission, through doing good works, <clears throat> through being rich in good deeds. And those are the things that we're to be about. <clears throat> uh, one man said, one, our, heart is all, our heart always follows our treasure, whether down to earth or up to heaven. So our heart always tracks in the direction um, of where our treasure is. So let's look at point two. Verses 22 and verse 23, what we're going to see is uh, that another key to flourishing in a money hungry world is the focus of your vision. And he, <clears throat> the focus of your vision really speaks to developing a God-centered vision for life and the way in which we're going to live. And in these verses, Jesus gives us an illustration. It has to do with blindness and sight. And he talks about the eye being the lamp of the body. And in that <clears throat> explanation, really, when you think about your sight, everything we do uh, is somewhat determined upon our sight, isn't it? When you think about our ability to, to run, your ability to uh, to to drive, to jump, to throw, to catch, to cook a meal, to uh, walk to lunch across the street, to paint a picture, anything those, those things you want to do are dependent upon your sight. And <clears throat> Jesus says, you know, if your eye is bad, your whole body's going to be bad. Meaning, if your eye is leading in the wrong direction, your body's going to follow in the wrong direction. It's not going to to go in a, in a healthier, good way. You're going to have to find a different uh, a different approach. Now. Um, in the ancient world, there's a little bit of a weird thing here that they they tended to think that it wasn't the light that came in from uh, from into our eyes that helped us see, but it was actually the light, what we had on the inside, that looked out and allowed us to see. So there's some discussion here as to what he means by light shining out of you versus light coming into you, but don't get... I think too bogged down in that because the, the point is really the point Jesus made all the way through that what's on the outside or, or the inside needs to match what's on the outside. And the eye is the gateway between the inside and the outside. And so this eye if it's good, is going to lead you in the right direction. If it's bad, it's going to lead you in the wrong direction. And there, the word here that it uses when it says if the eye is healthy is another interesting term because it's really hard to translate in English. Healthy is one way to translate it, but it's also a term that we've talked about being wholeness. Um, that's singleness or single-focused, something that's undivided, something that's pure, uh, something that is uh, healthy is a a reasonable definition there as well. Um, But whenever that term is used in the context of money, it often means generous. And he contrasts that with what he calls the evil eye. Um, Don't you love that evil eye? Like y'all know what the evil eye is, right? I'm convinced every mama has an evil eye. Like she look at a kid, she just you know she always turns her head a little bit sideways, and you look, and you're like, I'm toast, you know, and that's just the way that works. And every one of you knows you, know, you can you can probably still be paralyzed just thinking about that image. But the evil eye is not just talking about looking at you wrong; it's talking about something that actually distorts. It's talking about something that isn't evil in that sense. It's evil in the sense that it it corrupts or distorts your vision. Uh, I was. I took my dad to have cataract surgery recently, and uh, he was telling me that as he was talking to the doctor, he said, yeah, my vision's all messed up. Like, I just, I don't like the shades of things. I don't like the tints of them anymore. Like, that green wall over there just isn't isn't very attractive to me anymore. It's just, and he was wanting to get it fixed. And the doctor said, well, that's good because that wall's blue and my dad's eye was broken. There's something wrong in it, and it was distorting the way he saw it. He couldn't see colors anymore, and he needed to get it fixed. He needed to get something adjusted, and in that, I think that's part of what Jesus is saying here. And so he's saying, we need an eye that's healthy, meaning that it's whole, it's full, it's focused on the Lord, It's trust the Lord, which means it's generous. But an eye that's, that's broken, an eye that's evil, is going to be divided. It's gonna be, it's gonna be, it's gonna have divided motives. It's gonna have greediness. It's gonna have selfishness. It's gonna have other agendas that are driving it in terms of what it does. And so when you think about sin distorting our vision, uh, I think of passage in Revelation where um they're speaking to the church of Laodicea, and it says, you're neither hot nor cold, so I want to spit you out of my mouth. Why? It says, for you say, I am rich. I have prospered and I need nothing. Not realizing that you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. Meaning you have a perspective of life and you, because of your possessions, because of your wealth, because of your comfort and your security and earthly goods, it's caused a distortion of your view of yourself and of your world. And so it, it distorts the way in which we see things around us and leads us in an unhealthy path. That's why uh, scriptures say, Demas is forsaking me have loved the present world. Meaning that he, he abandoned the mission that God had him on. He abandoned the kingdom purposes that God sent him on because he was so in love with the perfect world that it, it led him astray in a different direction. I was driving on the highway the other day and we're watching and you ever just see a wreck unfolding in front of you and like you want to scream, honk, do something to stop it and there's nothing you can do. And we're watching this and we're seeing the traffic lights bump back up. And I'm seeing the car right in front of me is accelerating the whole time. And I know that person's eyes are doing this, right? And you can see they're texting. And the brake lights all come on in front and they don't notice what's ahead. They don't know where they're going. And they plowed full speed into the car right in front of me. And it's so obvious that when your eyes are here, you're not going to see what's coming down there. Your eyes are not going to be where they need to be. And the same thing happens to us when our eyes get fixed on all the stuff of earth. We don't see the the blessing and the goodness of heaven that awaits us. And we get fixated here and it leads to a, leads to a crash. So what Jesus is calling us to is, is just a different way of life. And so you notice when he says that they're so full of life they will give off light. He's saying that, that when your eye is right and you're and your Your vision is right. You have a vision, an ambition, a desire to live in a way that honors God. It's going to give off life. I think it echoes back to what Jesus said in Matthew 5, which is that you are the light of the world, and you're called to shine brightly and let everyone see your good deeds. That if we have a vision that God wants us to have for the world, if we have an eternal vision, we're going to live in a way that shines brightly to others. And that really leads us to the last one. When our hearts are aimed at the wrong values, when our eyes are clouded by wrong vision, it ultimately leads us to a wrong mission or purpose for our lives. So the last point is um, master of your mission. Jesus is gonna say that the, the one that we set our eyes on will ultimately not be content just to have our focus. It's gonna want to become our master. It'll wanna become our Lord. It'll wanna become our God. And so verse 24, Jesus uses this term uh, master and he says, no one can serve two masters that when we, you never recognize in life when you get under pressure that, um, that you're kind of forced to decide what's really important. Sometimes, sometimes you're forced and you come to a place where you have to get off the fence. And what Jesus says is life is going to push you in a way that you can't ride the fence, that you have to get off one side or the other. And so, either you're going to serve, he makes it an either or preposition. Either you're going to serve God or you're going to serve money, but money can't be your God. If money's your God, you're not going to like the Lord because he contradicts that. If the Lord's your God, you're not going to fall in love with money. Because the Lord's going to shape the way you view money. And, and really, he's getting at this idea of, of what really drives us, and he says no one can serve, can serve two masters. Um, you know, every issue in our heart, I think, comes back in, in this passage to our understanding of who our Father in heaven is. Do you believe that you have a good Father in heaven that you can trust? That you can trust his teaching on these things. You can trust his instruction. You can trust his care. You can trust his provision. You can trust your eternal life to him and to what he calls you to do. Because if you do, that's going to reorient the way in which you live and reprioritize the way in which you live. Um, If you don't, then you're going to look at the here and now and go, well, I better manage all of this and get all I can in the moment because there's nothing that awaits me down the road. Jesus is concerned not about, not just about what we consume, He's, con- he's concerned about what we would be consumed by. I love what Bonhoeffer uh, says about this, isn't it? Um, that, that our uh, sin, is never, sin is never content just to, um, uh, I'm sorry, the, the sin is never content to just entertain us, but sin ultimately has a destructive power over us. And the more and more isolated we become, the more destructive will be the power of sin over us. That, that sin isolates us from God, it isolates us from his spirit, it isolates us from his word, it isolates us from his people, it isolates us from his mission. And the more isolated we get, the more victimized we are by the sin that takes over us. And sin, is, sin wants to master us. And I love the, the term Jesus used, no one, can, no one can do what? No one can serve two masters. See, money is a gift that is meant to serve us. Money is something we're supposed to use. It's just a tool that we're to use. You're not supposed to become a tool of money. You're not supposed to serve money. Money's supposed to serve you. And you use money as something you steward and you manage under God's care for the good of the others, for the good of your life and your family and those you care about, but also for the good of God's mission. And so, money is something we use, not something we allow to use us. And and so, there's a battle that's going on here for our heart and for our attention, for our affection. And Jesus is ultimately going to point in verse 25, and we'll look at this uh, here very soon as we get as we kind of continue to work through this. What Jesus is going to say is, if you get this out of perspective, your heart's going to be wrecked with anxiety and stress and worry. If you don't put this in the right place, you're going to be uh, you're going to become wrecked with Isaiah or wrecked with um, with anxiety. Isaiah 42 says, "I am the Lord; that is my name. My glory I will give to no other." So God doesn't want to share the limelight with money and wealth and possessions and things of this earth. He's going to constantly push us in a different direction. So friends, what do we do with this? What's one practical way you can make your heavenly father uh, truly the treasure of your heart, that you can make him the, the focus of your vision, that you can make him the master of your mission, so that your mission, your purpose, uh, your, the reason why you're here on, on the planet isn't to serve the God of money, but serve the God who owns everything the God who created everything, the God who has no shortage of resources and the God whose resources don't decay and don't dwindle and don't, don't ever get lost, but the God whose provision and care for us is forever. I love the, the illustration that, um, that sometimes is given about our life being a dot and then there's a line that extends beyond the dot. And if you think about your life just being this tiny little point, this dot that that has this little beginning and a little end, you've got a birth, and a life on earth is this birth and a death, and it's this tiny little short amount of time, and from that dot, though, there's a line that extends outward, that never ends, that goes on into eternity. And the call here is to not live for the dot, but to live for the line that goes forever. Don't live for the moment. Don't live for the parentheses of your life, but live for the thing that's going to extend throughout all eternity. And really it starts with this view of our life that says, God owns everything and God is my master. God's my Lord, God's my king. And as he comes to establish a kingdom, I trust that because he's a good God, I'm gonna flourish best when I live in his ways and according to the way of his kingdom. And so whatever it is that distracts me from him, whether it's money or intellect or success or sexuality or personality or family, whatever those things are, if God is the one who's sovereign over all of them, all of those I need to see, under the, the, the perspective of God's care for me and trusting him with those things. Let me, let me end with this. John Owen says, and I love this quote, it's one of my favorite quotes, as he pushes us to think on these things. He says, spiritual mindedness, so our heart with the Lord and, and our, our relating to him, spiritual mindedness grows from and consists of being delighted by spiritual things what we love is what captures us. The great contest of heaven and earth is to see which of them can draw out our love. Whoever has our love has the whole of us. Love causes us to give ourselves away as nothing else can. Our love is like the rudder of a ship. Wherever it turn, it is turned, there the ship goes. It's no surprise that the world seeks to capture our love. The world must attract our attention, must attract our worship now because it's doomed to come to an end. But it's surely a surprise that God seeks our love. So I want to suggest to you that we think about ways that will help you direct your love away from the world and towards God. Um, do you see the call there? Um, where's, the, where's the love of your heart, friends? Does God have the love of your heart? Is your love of your heart seated in heaven with your Father, who's over all, or is your, the love of your heart fixated on earth in the stuff that's not going to last? that's not going to satisfy, that doesn't truly make you secure and that won't bring you ultimately joy and flourishing. Friends, redirect your heart. Allow that rudder of your ship to turn so that your eyes are lifted up and your gaze is lifted to your Father in heaven. He's worth, he's worth trusting. Let me pray for us. Lord, we ask that you would open the eyes of our heart that we might, that we might see you. Father, I pray that, I, that we would treasure you above everything else. Father, in the midst of, just all the stuff of life. Father, would you allow us, even in this moment, to just redirect our focus, that our eyes would not be on anything. We would not be distracted by anything but you, but we'd be consumed by your goodness, by your beauty, by your glory. Father, help us to unpack that and to live in, um, live in light of who you are. Father, we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.